Thank you everyone for coming out. My name is Nathan Baker. This is Natalie Peters, and we are the two organizers of today's event. This all started in early July, or June, as me and Natalie were watching the protests around the country unfold, and we both wanted to take action, but due to the situation that the pandemic put us in, to not safely partake in protesting. So we got together and we brainstormed, and we came up with the idea to hold a public panel-led discussion on systemic racism. And so over the course of the next month, we coordinated and planned that event, and we could not be more pleased to have such an amazing panel of speakers joining us today. The group that we organized it under, Ozaki Youth United, was originally founded for just that, to organize and promote the event. However, sorry. However, both of us decided that it would be better served as a youth organization of its own, and it is our hope that it can continue to stay active in the community in the future. Our hope for Ozaki Youth United is that it helps student activists throughout the community by magnifying their efforts and helping them to reach their fullest potential on whatever issues they may concern themselves with. By virtue of being a small community, it is easy to write off issues of race as not important or not pertaining to us. However, in aligning ourselves with our values and being good community members, it is imperative that we advocate for the fair treatment of everybody. Because whether it be ourselves, our neighbors, our family members, or our friends, someone we know is negatively affected by a system that is not fair for everybody. And so it is with love for our community that we advocate for the fair treatment of everyone, not just one group of people. Thank you. And now I would like to introduce Natalie Peters. Hi, everyone. So before we get started, there's just a few things that I want to let you know of. So first of all, I want to thank our sponsor, Slow Pokes, for donating to our event and helping us raise awareness for it. And secondly, I want to go over a little bit about how our event's going to run. So we're going to start with a panel discussion where our panelists and our moderators are going to talk about systemic racism in our community and outside of our community. Then we're going to transition over to a Q&A portion. So as you came in today, you received a slip of paper that you can write any questions on that you have for the panelists, and that will be after they finish their um, panel discussion. So you can write any questions, and we'll have volunteers walking around during the event so that will collect those from you. So you can hand them to them at any point, and they'll come around one last time before we um, start the Q&A portion. Um, also, just to let you know, if you're interested in continuing the discussion we're hosting today, along with the help of the Student Union in Cedarburg, we're going to be hosting some smaller group discussions that expand on what our panel talks about here, as well as talks about some further action that can be taken. Um, so more information on that event will be posted soon on our social medias and by the Student Union. We also want to thank um, anyone who donated to our GoFundMe to help raise money for this event. It makes a lot of difference, and we thank you very much for that. So now I'm going to hand it off to Pardeep, who is our moderator for the event, and he's going to tell you a little bit about himself. All right. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, thank you, Capco. Thank you for everyone that's out here today. Uh, good afternoon. Um, 2020 has definitely been a... Uh, a difficult, rough year, but um, you know we're going to co-create this experience together, and I am uh, honored 
to be joined by four phenomenal, um, or three phenomenal panelists. Jeanette could not make it here today, but she is with us in spirit. It's her birthday tomorrow, so we wish her uh, a very, very, very happy birthday. For those that are listening and not here right now, you, get, you can tune in on FM 89.1 to, uh, to listen in to this discussion. Um, I am, my name is Pardeep. I am the director of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee. The Interfaith Conference brings together uh, 22 different judicatories to work on uh, just building bridges through our, through our faiths and uh, ethnicities and cultures. Um, so I am, I'm honored to, be, to moderate. And definitely, like Natalie said, if we have questions, um, try to get it to Natalie or try to get it to Nathan, and we will read those questions off. Um, but today, uh, without further ado, I want to introduce our panelists. Uh, Tori Lowe is a committed, and I mean committed, advocate seeking to abolish socioeconomic segregation and racial tension that continue to plague our inner city communities in hopes of promoting a more stable, thriving society. He is the co-founder and CEO of Justice of Milwaukee, a nonprofit civil and human rights organization in Milwaukee, and has over the years assisted in locating over 188 registered Missing people in the city of Milwaukee, garnering him national attention. Uh, let's give it up for, I mean, this, that. Like, this has been in the news and in the media. 188 registered missing people in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, for the past six years, uh, Tory has hosted an annual 100-mile anti-violence peace walk from Milwaukee to Chicago. A walk from Milwaukee to Chicago. His mission, faith, and passion are a testament to all he does. To find out more about Tori, you can go to torilow.com. That's T-O-R-Y-L-O-W-E.com. And please help support him and his mission and, and, and his ministry, really. Tian Austin is the current Assistant Dean of Students for Diversity Initiatives and Adjunct Professor at Cardinal Stritch University. He has helped to make education accessible for all students at Stritch through helping them find and support and, and support their resources they need to be successful through planning, implementation, facilitation, and management of programming. He has spent his professional career helping others overcome barriers to success in various, in various vocational and educational endeavors. Tian has worked with Milwaukee's Workforce Investment Board and Marquette University's Trio program. Him and I also attended Marquette University together as undergrads. <laughs> so he's family. Um, and is currently a candidate, congratulations, uh, is a candidate for, PhD, for a PhD in higher education leadership at Cardinal Stritch University. That's awesome. Wow. Through organizations like Black Alliance and Educational Options and grassroots efforts like Growing Black Men of Milwaukee, a, philanthrop a philanthropic effort, Tian works towards empowering and creating caring communities. Thank you. Right. And Jeanette could not be with us today, but Jeanette is also, Jeanette was elected into office in June 2016 as the first African American to serve on the county board supervisor for Ozaki County. And in 2011, Jeanette started leaders leaving agencies, leaving legacies, LLC, for which she pursues her passion of empowering others to be successful leaders through professional coaching and mentoring. She is a member of 
the ex- exclusive Forbes Co- Coaches Council, the author of 10 Communication Brings, Us, Brings Transformation, Unleash Your Greatness, and a con- and contributor of Forbes and Thriving Global. Again, she could not be with us today, but she will be with us in spirit. And last and definitely, definitely not least, um, again, we just have a phenomenal panel, and I'm, I'm excited to get, get going. Erica Turner is a registered nurse and IT professional in healthcare. She is an extraordinary, passionate advocate for building a world of racial justice and equity across all facets of her life, focused on forging relationships in a virtually all-white suburban community where her family lives, works, plays, and worships. Erica was integral in creating the grassroots organization Bridge the Divide and sponsors racially literate podcasts, educational programming, community projects, film series, and book studies to promote, long la- promote lasting cross-cultural connections. Her goal is to facilitate community conversations that launch joint, achievable, sustainable solutions, especially in the North Shore suburbs and exurbs. They got it right? Exurbs. She is committed in interacting with love, listening, while reserving judgment, fostering healing from racial injustices, and waking up apathetic attitudes. I've also been lucky to work with Erica over the past, and um, again, uh, I am, I'm lucky to be able to moderate this panel, and I have said a mouthful. I am going to let them introduce themselves and the work that they do. Uh, Tori? I'd like to say hello to everybody. Hope you're enjoying yourselves. Um, hope this panel uh, brings education, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding and uh, increase our faith in God. Uh, I, I'm an ad- advocate and an activist out in the city of Milwaukee and across the state of Wisconsin. I deal with more of the legal ideas when people are discriminated against. I uh, deal with the lawsuits with the attorneys and the families. And I also deal with the violence. Um, uh, equally, as we uh, complain about the injustice, we have to fight against the violence in our neighborhoods. And um, I, I, I do the bulk of the violence in my community, and I deal with the families. And during the most painful uh, day of their lives, when they hear that a person was killed in their families, or when it's missing people, I deal organized with the families when somebody comes up missing. Um, I noticed that the police would wait 24 hours before they would actually uh, register a person as a loved one, as a missing person. So I just said, if a mother or a father don't know where their child is, I'm going to start that moment. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, you know, it, it pissed a lot of people off because I just went looking. And then after years went by, I noticed I looked up and somebody was like, hey, Tori, you helped find these many people. And I was like, well, I got right on it. You know what I mean? And if you can get right on it, you can probably stop some of the damage that comes with time when somebody's missing. So like I said, long story short, we all have to get active. We all have to become advocates, and we all have to become uh, really engaged on doing frontline work in our communities, and I'm proud to be here today. Thank you so much, Tori. Tian? Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, Like Tori said, I'm really hoping that we can leave you guys with something that will empower you and help you see the role you play in really furthering diversity initiatives and helping to bring a a meaningful and sustainable change in our community. Uh, One of the things I do is 
uh, travel to schools, uh, public and private, doing teacher education uh, in the city of Milwaukee, which if you know anything about the school systems in the city of Milwaukee, they're uh, very disproportionate. The teachers don't look like the students they serve. And so that puts forth a lot of barriers to really um, communicate, understand, discipline, and educate. And so uh, one of the things that I'm hoping that we can leave with you all is the fact that you all can get into rooms, can get conversations, and can have impacts in places that we could not have impacts. And so um, hopefully that we can, we can help you understand a little bit of that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Tia. Erica? Thank you so much for being here today. Um, like Pardeep said, my name is Erica Turner. I have lived in Cedarburg for about 13 years now. So the conversation that I'd like to have in Ozaki County is not one of, well, if they need help in Milwaukee, why don't you go help the people in Milwaukee? Because my answer to that is that the people that live in Ozaukee County, drive to Milwaukee to run their business, drive to Milwaukee to interact with people, have African-American families in their backyard. And, you know, we've had an incident where there was a, a racist letter that was addressed to a mixed couple in our backyard here. There is plenty of work to be done here. We need to have people do some introspection learn a little bit about what systemic racism is, so here's a start, and then realize that how you think, how you interact, how you understand history, how you build relationships with people that look or think differently than you is all on you. It's not for somebody else to do. So I'm here to help Ozaki County figure out how we can do the work. We should be better here, and then we'll in turn be better for any of the counties that we interact with. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Um, and then, as we talk about as we talk about some of the issues that our community or communities face, um, as Tori was speaking, I was kind of reflecting back to my my career as a police officer. I, I served the city of Milwaukee for about five years before I became an educator. And when Tori is talking about making missing persons. A priority that it, I, it offends me nothing if, if, I, if I have the heart of what a police officer should have a heart for right. it offends me not at all it actually it encourages me that Tory is treating people as a priority as we all should we should all treat people as a priority but sometimes what happens is that certain people feel like they're not treated as a priority right. they feel like their lives or their missing persons or their missing families don't matter. And so Tory goes out there and goes out of his way to put his own neck on the line without a gun, without a badge, without right. the backing of a police force, but goes and does it right away. And I'll, a lot of you have seen the show for the first 48. Right. They will say that the first 48 hours are really the most important time to figure out what has happened to this person. That's right. Right? And the thing with, with, with missing persons is that Somehow, some way, we got to think about what if this was our child? What if this was our family member? What type of priority would we want that to be to be instilled? And right now, he is not only fighting 
a, a, a like an, like these issues of missing missing people, but he's also fighting a culture, and the culture is you know basically a culture of not caring enough to do your job. And I think that's what we want to reform right now, is that we want to change. We want to make sure that everybody understands to do what they're supposed to be doing, that we need to instill a sense in the society of care. So that, that takes me into this first question. How do, how do you, Tori, how do you um, define systemic racism? And maybe each one of our panelists can talk about, Tori, you can talk about it from your perspective, and Tian, maybe you could talk about it from, from education. And then Erica, maybe as far as the community and Ozaki goes. But how do you define um, systemic racism and how is it embedded into our society nationally or locally? Well, systemic racism is an idea to give one particular group of people an advantage and, an, and other groups of people a disadvantage. So it's in almost every idea that we, in education, is in housing, it's in uh, economics. Um, you know, in my community, if you're living in, in, our, in a 53206, you can't get a loan. You can't get a loan. It's like, because um, you live in, a, in what we call a bad neighborhood. So if you are going to college, doing the right things, you know, you go to get a loan and they say, well, you're going to pay a higher interest rate because you live in this area. That's systematic racism. When you're when you, um, going to get an education and um, you get this education, then you go get a job and you say, um, I've got the same experience as this person, but yet I'm getting entry-level pay. Or, or I have this much experience, but yet we're not getting the same pay. That, that's systematic. That's something that can uh, dis cripple a person that's trying to do the right thing, that's trying to live what we call the American dream, or trying to get out here. My grandmother always told me to do the right thing. But then I got to a point where I was working at a job in Minnesota where I was a Knights parts cage manager, and I was in management. I was one of the only first African-Americans in management. And a year and a half later, some of the employees tried to jump me and tie me up and throw me in a hog grinder because they basically said that they didn't like my skin color. And then I had to go to federal court. It took me four and a half years to go through that whole process in the state of Minnesota. And I learned that we have a huge fight. And, and sometimes you can do the right thing and still be stricken down through systematic racism. And this is what we have to stop. We have to stop it on all levels. We have, as a community, it's going to take white, black, brown, Native Americans, everybody to say we all should be treated equal as far as what we're, if, especially if you're doing the right thing, especially if you're out here going uh, through the process. You, you're not out here trying to be a criminal. Why should you be, uh, your process be impeded due to systematic racism? So my idea of systematic racism is anytime there's an idea that is there, regardless if you're good or not, it's going to restrict you from progress. Thank you. And so it's historical, it is systematic, it is ingrained, right. it is something that we all need to fight. Yeah, uh, and Brother Tory hit it right on, on the head. Um, one of the important things to realize is that it's a system of practices, policies, and procedures that all uphold systems of racism, prejudice, stereotypes. And what a lot of people don't realize is, although 
systemic racism was once rooted in laws and once rooted in blatant hatred, that's not the case anymore. And so now to give you a good example, you think about the Model T for cars. Like when did the car industry really take a boom? For any of you who know your history, you know it was when it reached a point of automation. So when you think about systemic racism, think about it as being automation. Because now you can have individuals, it could be brown individuals. It can be people who are married to people of color. It could be people who could pass a polygraph lie detector test saying that they're not racist and not prejudiced, who uphold these policies, uphold these procedures, and keep that system alive and thriving. And so... Uh, when you think about systemic racism, those, that's the true definition. And so not being aware of the biases that we hold personally and not being a, aware of the systems that we are a part of and really taking an honest look at how they impact the stakeholders, not only our customers, not only our clients, but our coworkers, uh, our neighbors, the community, um, all of those things are the reason we are still having this conversation in 2020. Um, and I'll share a little story since Tori did. I'm going to follow Lee. Uh, but uh, Tori mentioned how in the real estate industry that systemic racism is a huge thing. I remember fresh out of college, I worked four jobs, two full-time jobs, two part-time jobs because I, I had three kids at the time. I wanted to buy my family a home. Now, I had always grew up on 53206, 53210, some of the tougher zip codes in the city of Milwaukee, and my wife did not grow up in that neighborhood, and I wanted my children to be close enough to the neighborhood to where they got the good aspects of that community, but they still had a buffer from some of the, the nonsense that goes on. Um, and so I gave my real estate agent a number of real estate agents, an outline of where I wanted to live. You know, these neighborhoods are the ones I'm looking for. And so several individuals showed me every house in every neighborhood but the ones that I asked for. And so it got to the point where I'm dropping real estate agents and I'm finally talking to one, frankly, because I'm, I'm, I'm fed up at the time, and I'm like, why aren't you showing me what I want to see? And he's telling me, well... All these neighborhoods need is good people like yourself to come in and change them around. And I'm like, well, I'll buy a house. You buy one right next to me. He wasn't interested in that. And, and so I'm like, I'm in these communities. I'm doing this work. You know, at the time, my office was on 27th and North Avenue. So I'm helping people with felonies. I'm, I'm, I'm going to job interviews with them, people who wouldn't normally give them a chance. I'm standing in the gap like, look, you hire Pardeep, I'll come, I'll check in with him every week. I'll make sure he does what he needs to do so that, you know, he can get this opportunity. And so, um, you know, you guys can say, sometimes you need a break from everything that you indulged in so that you can look at it with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, he had no viable answer why he didn't show me those homes. Um, and then finally he showed me, too, they were the worst houses you ever saw. And he was like, see, I told you, you, you know, for your money, you have to stay in this area. And that goes back to a, a process called redlining That's that right. Tori mentioned, which is no longer legal, but it's still, still practiced. Thank you.
Thank you, T. And so when we think about systemic racism, we got to think about the history of this country, and we got to think about the history of, of the legislation that, that governed a lot of the policies within this country. So, and a lot of times we do think about systemic as in policy, as in systems. But today, um, Tian is saying that we, we got to think about it as in spiritual as well. Because, you know, when we talk with heads, heads listen. When we talk with hearts, hearts listen. We're hoping that your hearts are listening as well as your heads, and we have to make policy changes. We have to make systemic changes, but we also need to make a spiritual change. So if he's going to his real estate agent, and the real estate agent is basically not showing him a place because they got some whatever's happening within their experience, within, within who they are as a, as a being, that's telling him that he is worth a house over here or a house over there, and not, uh, not listening to his requests, that's a spiritual problem. And so but that, this is why we are all talking about, yes, we're talking about systemic as far as policy, but Tori's talking about it from a sense of spirituality. Mm-hmm. This is a deeply ingrained issue. Tian is talking about it from a sense of spirituality. And Erica, when you talk about systemic racism, you're kind of talking about it from a sense of spirituality as well. I'm, um, I would like to just jump on something that Tian said before I give you my story about systemic racism. Um, when we talk about redlining, when we talk about racially restrictive covenants, many of us have heard about that history in Milwaukee and, you know, how, again, it's a their problem. So one of the things that we did was we went up to Port Washington, which is the county seat for Oz, and we went to the, the, um, the look at the deeds and we spent days and days there. And what we found was racially restrictive covenants in Mequon in Thienesville. We're still looking to see how many we have. And in case you haven't heard of them, the racially restrictive covenants were on the books, on your deed, on your subdivisions um, uh, paperwork. And the one that I have from Mequon reads, no person of any race other than the Caucasian race shall use or occupy any building lot or building except that this covenant shall not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of a different race domiciled with the owner or tenant. So again, not saying that everything is about how a person feels, if they're nice to you or not, if they use a racial slur. These things were, were written into laws, into our books for our homes, and to me, systemic racism is about the wealth gap. It's a racial wealth gap. So I live in Ozaukee County. Um, I am not from Wisconsin. I'm from Ohio. Um, married to a retired soldier. So shout out to Greg, 21 years in the Army. Um, but one of the, the problems that didn't start with my generation, but started with my grandfather's generation. He served in World War II. He could not get the GI Bill. And again, with your history, the GI Bill basically allowed for soldiers to come out of the army, come out of the military, and create this middle class. They got homes. They got uh, education. Then those of you who are descendant from military folks who got the GI Bill and the VA loans, you had three, five, ten homes that you were able to sell and get equity from or pull from that equity to send your children to school, or when um, the economy takes a turn, you're able to pull from that equity to help support you to get you through the rough times. 
If you think about the history of African Americans, my grandfather could not get the GI Bill. So how was he going to get a home? If I'm telling you about how black people struggled and you say, well, I worked hard, my parents worked hard, if you just worked hard, you would have it too. Have what? You, they weren't allowed to have the GI Bill. So if you couldn't have the GI Bill and you had redlining and you had racially restrictive covenants, what homes were you going to buy to get the equity to make your life that much better? So when I think about our family in Ozaukee County and I have to talk to people about some of the things that happen in Ozaukee County and I hear a lot, if you don't like it here, then you can go somewhere else. If more people, again, more people worked harder, tried harder, got better education, they can, go, they, can, they can get here, and it's somebody else's fault. And this is where we have to learn the history of all these things that happened, layers and layers and layers. And we didn't even talk about you know, 400 years of, of free labor from people that you stole, beat, and raped, and brought to the U.S. You know, that's, that's still, this is all layering on top of that to get us to where we are in 2020. So there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot to undo, and the answers can't be, well, if you just tried harder, if you worked harder in school, if, God forbid, you just weren't violent, then you could be here too. And that's not true. So we have to unpack all of this to learn all of the effects of the systemic racism, not just talk about it. Yeah. I just want to add on real quick, Par. I saw some looks of surprise when Erica talked about those covenants. Uh, I remember attending a uh, session by Reggie Jackson uh, with the Black Holocaust Museum who talked about, I think it's nine cities in the state of Wisconsin who still have active covenants like that on the books. They're not set to expire for like another 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so think about the mental impact if I'm living there with my family and my kids discover that we're living in a housing place that um, says that, whether I'm a person of color or not, you know, you can say everybody's equal, and then your kid finds that out, and they're like, oh, I'm going to do some reading between the lines, you know. And so we have to pay attention to kind of where we use our time, talent, and treasure, because if it perpetuates something we don't believe in, we might as well believe in it. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I think piggybacking on just thinking about our country and our country having this sort of build your boots, you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps mentality of if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, then you too should be able to succeed. And that not always that's not being that not being the case. I want to ask this question, and this is in lieu of uh, the George Floyd murder and uh, the. Um, the, the marches that happened, and I won't use the word protest or a riot. I'm going to use the word marches. And the marches, what, what Tori, what do you, uh, if you address, if you had to address any misconceptions around the marches uh, being held throughout the country, what would you say? Um, I'm a victim's advocate, first of all. I do victims. So if a victim wants to march and protest to prove their point, that's what I'm going to do. But when it comes to greater ideas, when you have 28 cities and they all protesting at the same time, when I saw 
the organized idea, I knew that that was a socially engineered protest. There's no way 28 cities are doing the same thing at the same time. So I wanted to see who was funding the idea because that is not organic. This is something that's being done for whatever reason. So immediately I was like, okay, who's paying for this? <laughs> You know, so all you got to do is go and do your research on uh, some of the Black Lives Matters uh, websites, and you can see that it's well-funded. Some of these things are well-funded ideas. They have over a billion dollars in funding, and, it, and some of this funding is going to the Democratic idea. And uh, if we had a Black Lives Matter and it was a billion dollars in it, how come some of this money is not going to new, new schools, education, uh, things that we need, lead poisoning, to remove some of the piping in our neighborhoods? And, uh, and how come violence is up? If, if black lives truly matter, why violence is up 98% in the city of Milwaukee? <laughs> See, I'm, I'm a thinker. I'm just not a sheep. I'm not going to just run out the door because a lot of people are out here protesting. You know, you got to understand what's going on at all times. Plus, I have a responsibility to so many families to know what's going on because I have to report to these families and tell them things they need to do move forward. So I'm not going to say that I, um, I participated. I have not participated in any socially engineered protests ever. But I have protested in Joe Acevedo. He was murdered by a Milwaukee police officer April 19th at a cop house at a house party. And his family came, and we, we got up with the family. We've done those protests because these are the things that um, are in our community that is not socially engineered. It's by the people. And also, George Floyd attorney is working with the Joe Acevedo family in Milwaukee. So to make a long story short, what my opinion on all the protests is just make sure you understand what you're really protesting for. <laughs> because... Sometimes you can be a sheep and somebody can take your emotions and your emotions may be legit. Like your, your anger with the um, way you're being handled by the police is, could be legit. But a person with a plan can come and steer you into a wall. And sometimes if you're not educated and you don't have the knowledge of what's going on, I can take your anger and steer you any way I want to steer you. And, I, and I'm not going to say nothing. I have my own personal beliefs. But I think sometimes we have to make sure that everybody's included in the fight for justice. No, thank you. And I think, you know, as far as this, thinking about, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but thinking about well-meaning plans and well-meaning protests, marches, but also thinking about how those are implemented. How are they executed? Yeah. Is policy and all these things, is that really changing the culture of suffering? And then, and, and Tori's, yeah, thank you for speaking on that and really talking about the culture of suffering and how we do, how do we really change this culture of suffering? Tian, um, as far as any misconceptions that uh, you think have happened about the protests and the marches? Uh, for one, I would say that I think that a lot of us are falling victim to misdirection. So if you think about a good magic trick, if I got this paper in my hand and I tell you I'm going to make it disappear, 
and I can cause your attention to come over here toward Erica, and I can just simply slide in under my leg and keep talking. Like, this happens so much in our social justice fights, in our, you know, fights against racism, prejudice, ableism, any of the isms you want to put on it. And we got to realize that, for one, like Tori said, you got to follow the money. You got to know who's leading it, why are they leading it, you know, what their purpose is. And then, two, you got to see what's happening afterwards. And so, um, in any fight, you got to cause attention and then you got to change some things. And so, for me, I don't have to understand why you guys are out here today taking part in this conversation. I don't have to understand why people are, you know, a few blocks or a few miles south walking and marching, but I got to understand that they're causing attention to a matter that's important to them. That next step is to capitalize. And so it may be the same people who are marching that's also doing the work of helping to inform policy, helping to hold their peers accountable, or it may be compartmentalized. But anything that goes wrong in any of those steps. So if all of you were here protesting and one of you are doing something that, you know, is counter to the reason that you're out there, like, I can't let that be the story. And I can't support media outlets who capitalize on that sexy, sensational story and saying that, you know, one guy out in Grafton today, you know, and, and let him take that whole narrative. That's right. You have to stay focused. Thank you, T. Erica? So, Ozaki County and marches. We've we've had some, some marches out this way. Um, Overall, I am not a person that enjoys hanging out with, you know, 500 of my closest friends and, and making noise. That Just in general, it's not what I want to do. However, we have had so many years of some of us internalizing our pain, some of us not being aware of what's been happening, so I can very much understand the bubbling up of emotions and an and anger, a rage at the system. And then how do I let the system know how upset I am? And I see that in the marches. And then there are the next steps. So misconceptions about the marches, some that have happened in Ozaki County, um, one in Port Washington, uh, word kind of went around the social media streets saying, you better watch out for those protesters. One, because remember that riot that happened? What, what riot that happened in, in Port Washington? Who was doing what? Well, they're going to come up here and they're going to burn the American flag, and so everybody needs to come out and make it stop. Okay, that, that had the people who were organizing the march, Break the Silence and the Burbs, have no intention of burning flags. Their goal was to break the silence, make some noise, make some people aware of things that are going on that you were previously able to close your eyes to, and now you can't close your eyes to that anymore. So that gets people kind of riled up. Well, then I guess we have to come and defend ourselves. So then that become, then you become the aggressor because the people who were coming had no intention of doing anything wrong but to make our voices heard but you come and you bring weapons and you stand aggressively and you yell. So that kind of, that's kind of how it can spiral out of control. The way that I see um, marches affecting us, we had one last night in Cedarburg 
So again, social media, if you want to protest, why don't you go to Milwaukee? Why do you think that Ozaki County is not a part of this world? We're not a separate entity. We are a part of what's happening all across right. the country. So we are going to have a march here. And we did that informing the police, informing the community. We had a march. We made some noise. We came back to the park. We had a community circle. And then we talked about how that march made you feel. Did it make you feel like you were able to yell and get some of the pressure off for things that were building? And then we asked them what they were doing next. We talked about the next common council meetings. We talked about the next school board meetings. We talked about um, uh, the primary on August 11th. We talked about making sure the young people got registered to vote before November. So we talked about all the layers of the action steps that you take. You have the march, you, you make some noise, you bring people together, you get kind of a collective community that's different than your community sitting and, and um, eating in the park. This is a different community. You get everybody together and you say, I don't like it, I want it to change. Okay, then what are we gonna do to make it change? And then let's go. Who, what step is next and let's do it. So I think it has a place and I think that we need to learn from historically civil rights movement in the 60s when, when you're marching and when you're talking, when you're sitting at the table, when you are sitting at the boardroom, and when you're um, you know, sitting amongst your friends making sure that they understand that their ideas or their thoughts or their actions were wrong. There's, there's a place for it. There's a place for all of it. Uh, the George Floyd murder, we watched a man take his final breaths on camera and and for you know, and he said something that's familiar to all of us and he called out to his mom and initially I thought that he was calling out to his mom for help but over over time you learned that George Floyd's mom was already deceased that's right and so he wasn't calling out to his mom for help he was calling out to his mom and telling her that he's coming that's right he's going to meet her and that he's dying in front of us. And I thought our collective psyche, for one, we're not never supposed to see anything like that. But we have been conditioned to see things like that for a very long time. So within what, what Erica's saying, what Tori's saying, what Tian's saying, is that we can't stop at absolvement. That's right. We can't stop and say, because we marched, we can, we're good. We're, our hands are clean. All of us here, everyone that's in the vehicle, including myself, have watched this for too long and have been complicit. And so we, we are great at looking out of windows, but we suck at looking in the mirror. That's right. This is a time that America and our consciousness needs to look directly in the mirror and say, what have you done and what will you continue to promise to do? It might be about voting. It might be about going on to... Uh, and, and supporting to, uh, Tory at torylow.com. It might be, you know, supporting Cardinal Stritch and Tian and the work that he's doing. It might go, you go back to your corporations or companies or organizations or to your families and have this conversation. We can't reach everybody, and we don't, we're not going to be able to. That's where this whole sacred family comes into play, is that we have to continue to do the work. And those discussions aren't easy. You're going to go to those discussions, and people are going to look at you and say, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? They're going to say the same thing Erica said. Well, if they just work hard enough, 
Milwaukee could be, and they won't know the history. We need you to go ahead and do that. Each one, reach one, teach one. But we have to get out there and we have to be doing that work. And this is just, we're, none of us are inspirational speakers. All right? What we are are commitment speakers. We need you to be committed. And so last question that, um, last question that we're going to ask before we open it up for Q&A is, Tori, how do, how do people become part of the solution? How can people become part of the solution? That's a great question. Um, I think people need to take time to learn the truth. And the truth will set you free. Um, we got to understand that African-Americans have always been robbed of their ideas, of their work, efforts. And they are always be portrayed as lazy, savage, uncivilized. But if you look at history, beyond slavery, you know, beyond that, the truth. How many inventions have been stole from African-Americans? How many ideas have been taken away from them that could have generated wealth? We got to start teaching our kids the truth about the black experience in America. And the truth is, is that they are smart, educated, powerful people, just like everybody else. There's no race above any race. And until we start teaching our children the truth, like they said, uh, we were, I got an A on the test for saying Columbus discovered America. Like, I got an A on that test. But that wasn't the truth. Columbus did not discover America. But if I took a test and, did, and said he didn't, I failed. So understand there's a lot of lies throughout history that have been told to us, and we're operating on those lies. So it's up to us to really do our research, teach our children, Teach our family members the truth and let them create their own way based on the truth of history. And it's not hard to find. All you got to do is ask Siri. Siri, Siri will tell you. Ask Siri anything. She gonna, Siri going to tell you something. <laughs> it's just that easy in 2020. So just as much time we take to look at the gossip and the BS, let's take some time to look at the facts. And that's all I'm asking y'all, to educate your children on the truth about African Americans and how great and, and how fantastic they were instead of teaching them the, the negative narratives that perpetuate racism and systemic um, racism. Thank you, Tori. Tian? All right. Um, I got some vocabulary for you. So in literature, there's two types of problems, right? It's a wicked problem and a technical problem. Technical problems are the problems where there's a clear-cut cause and there's a clear-cut solution, right? So we hot right now. That's a technical problem. We can huddle in this trailer. It's cooler in there. We probably can go in the building. It's, it's cooler in there. The, the AC is on. But there's things called wicked problems, which, you know, there's so many things that come together to cause this one type of problem. And so... When you think about things like racism, things like systemic racism or any of the prejudices, they're wicked problems. So it's not five things we can do and have a solution. And so whenever I do any training on this issue, I like to break it down to something that you can do on a micro level. And so when you think about your family structure, I mean, we all know we got a family member who probably say, do, act, or think some things that 
if they came on stage and grabbed the mic right now, we would be embarrassed of, right? It starts with having those tough conversations with that individual, holding them accountable, and holding yourself accountable to learn things. Like Tori said, I mean, I learned how to fix almost every part of my little raggedy car back there because I had more time than money. How did I do that? YouTube and books. And so it's enough diversity training that's recording that you can take part in this. So for for me, um, Bridge the Divide is, it was created because we needed in Oz to find a way to attack the problem that's in our backyard. Um, and not our backyard as in Milwaukee County, our backyard is in Ozaukee County. And what we like to do is, like Tian said, the, the bite-sized pieces. So if you look at your children's school book and you see that they have included um, Irish, German, and Africans as immigrants to the United States, well, then we all need to be at the school board meeting and at every curriculum review meeting and figure out how to either change that book or make sure there's additional curriculum that corrects that narrative. Because African Americans were not immigrants. We didn't just decide we're going to show up um, in the United States because we wanted a vacation or something. So you find a problem, you do something to attack the problem. We like to include our community. We're very much into relationship building, partly because you're going to be able to hear a hard truth from someone you're in relationship with a lot easier than you are from a stranger that's shouting at you from across the street. You're not necessarily going to sit at the table to listen to the, the, the trouble, to listen to hard solutions, to sit in the discomfort if you don't have a relationship with the people that you're talking to. So we would like to be and are trying to be a part of the community so then when you have a hard question, we're here as your community to listen to that question, to give some compassion at how you arrived at that, and also, with all the love in the world, still speak truth to power. Still tell you why that issue is, is incorrect and help you learn the truth about whatever that issue is. So I, I really think that there are, there are hard truths and there are easier truths, but when you're together and doing it in community with each other, it makes it a lot more tolerable, a lot more... Um, it's not easy. I was going to say easier, but it's not. <laughs> but you have to know that it's not easy and be willing to sit in the discomfort because we're all going to get to a better place if we can work through it. None of us are getting any better if we don't talk about it, if we don't work through it. So we like to do that in community with those around us. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Tian. Thank you, Tori. I just want to thank you all as well um, for coming out today. I am going to read off a few questions. Um, uh, and uh, some of these questions, just if I think Natalie is coming around or Nathan is coming around, if there if there are some questions, I think just uh, get their attention and then they can bring it up to me. The first question uh, that we have, and I think this this one could be answered by all all three panelists. Um, what do you have to say about those who constantly bring up black on black black on black crime when talking about BLM? I'll answer that. I'm 
black on black crime is no different from white on white crime. It's the same statistics. It's no such thing as black on black crime. It's crime in every community. Every race kills each other at a high rate. <laughs> so it's almost like an inflated idea that people want to throw to distract at what people are really trying to do when it comes to injustice. Violence and injustice are, are two different ideas. So if you go into a Hispanic community, the rate of a Hispanic killing other Hispanics is 90%, 90, 98%. If you go into white communities, the rate of whites killing whites is at 98%. So when you say black on black crime is high, then you gotta it's that's a false narrative because all of our races have that same statistic. So that's the that's a, a idea to counter an idea to try to throw people off of what the mission is when people are trying to say, hey, we're being mistreated by police, right? And that's what that is. And you can look that up. It's, uh, that's information you can look up. You can ask Siri um, and she'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and the reason behind that is because think about how we live. We put these silos up around us so that we're surrounded by people who live, work, or think like us. And so when it's a disagreement, it's probably going to be either somebody we directly know or someone within our community that looks like us who does those things to us. Um Again, it goes back to what I was talking to you about, about misdirection. And I'll break it down to a simple analogy like this. Any of you have kids. If you told them the house was absolutely messy and you needed it clean before you got home from work, and you came home and it wasn't clean, and the thing that stuck out to you the most was a, a, a horrible odor coming from those dishes, coming from the kitchen. You didn't know if it was the garbage, you didn't know if it was the dishes, but it was coming from the kitchen. And you said, I want everybody in here taking care of that kitchen because we got to get this done first. And you got one kid that says, well, I'm going to go make my bed up. Well, I'm, I'm going to go pick up in the living room. The time for all of that is past. Like, that's not a sense of urgency. Right now, because our house is unpleasant to be in and it does not smell good, we need to take care of this kitchen, find out where it's coming from, and do that. And then we can move on to those other things in the house. We can even say, I got the kitchen. Tori, you get the living room and dining room. Erica, you get the bathroom. We can do that. But we can't say, I'm not going to do anything in the kitchen because the bathroom is dirty. And that's what we're doing with this argument. And that's the simplest way I can help people understand that misdirection is happening. Um, I don't know if we said it earlier, but if not, we should say it now. All black people are not a monolith, right? You can't say that you hear one voice and that voice represents every African-American in the universe, right? So I understand that I don't have a lived experience with um, being an adult living in an urban area being an adult living in the inner city, because I haven't. I've lived in places like this. So when I am talking to you about what I want us to do for the area that we live in, 
then that's what the conversation is. And being distracted by another conversation or a de- what I've seen more often, especially on social media, is a debate. If I say, have any of the children in the Grafton School District ever reported being victims of racism? And then you want to debate me about black-on-black crime. I, that's not my specialty. That's not my expertise. I can certainly try to get you connected with Tori and Tion, and you can talk to them about it. But, but we are having a conversation about something that you can do and being, uh, having a deflection, having a distraction, having a debate, because you don't want to talk about the hard stuff that I'm asking you to talk about. Is, it's, just, it's just not necessary. And I think that we have to understand that we can't reach everybody with our message. So I am not shooting for the extreme right or left to try to have a debate with because I, I'm, I'm done debating. I'm trying to have the action. And I, it just, I can back away from that conversation and lead you to someone else. And I'd like to say one more thing. We can talk about different distractive conversations but overdosing is triple the homicide rate. Uh, it's still death, whether it's a gunshot or a pill. The overdose rate is 401 people, 407 people died last year or from overdose, and only 140 people got shot and killed. So you can go on and on with these conversations of what is what, or you try to off-balance somebody. Because if somebody come at me with something about the, the black on black or the whatever the, they're trying to make it, it's a bigger issue with overdosing. And if they showed every overdose on the news, it would be three overdose a day on the news. But instead, the, once again, the media only perpetuates African Americans as a certain uh, idea. It's killing and murders going on in everybody's neighborhood. But they only highlight what's going on in the African-American neighborhood. It's like they lead with it. So it, it's kind of like a propaganda-type strategy. But the truth is, if they put on the overdosing that is being done all over the state of Wisconsin, it would, it would surpass, it would, it would triple, it's almost quadruple the shootings. So what are we looking at here? So that, that's something to think about. Yeah, and, and that will build a narrative, and that will cause our society to establish new norms and new opinions about those people that are reflected to be doing that. And so when you think about, historically, think about Adolf Hitler. How was he able to get so many people to buy in to think that genocide of a certain group of people was okay? Propaganda is real, and it's impactful. Humans can be programmed. And so when we don't monitor our news outlets and don't uh, look for uh, supplemental material to make sure we get the closest version of the truth by going to multiple sources, that programming happens to you consciously or subconsciously. And that goes into uh, maybe the next question here. Um, How do we reach people who may be on the fence? How do we get them to attend events like this uh, and make the shift? How do we get people that might be on the fence? I think we have to be a part of multiple layers in the community. So if it's a community effort, you can't only say, well, I'm going to speak about this at um, 
at a school program. And I've spoken about it, so all is good. There are so many layers. You have to talk about it with the people that you carpool with to work. Oh, wait, that was, sorry, that was pre-COVID life, nothing. (laughs) But the people that you go to church with, right, that you have a group that you're fellowshipping with, two or three people there could have a conversation. Um, You can have people that you're on the PTO with that you're going to have a a different kind of relationship with, that you have a space to talk about these things that are affecting your students in your school. We have big events. We ask for everybody to come. If, If half of the people came, then it's up to you when you leave to go talk to somebody else about what you heard. Um, It has to be an an active process. I think we are, and I don't know if it's because we're Americans that we're kind of passive. If we just wait and watch, the answer will sweep by us and it'll fix everything. We need to become active, and that means every little step, every little conversation, every little book you read, you work in your sphere of influence. If you're an art teacher, how many of the the, um, works of art that you review with your students are painted, sculpted, photographed by people of color. How much of that art is about people of color? Every spot that you're in, and no matter how many layers of your identity, there is a space to talk to one other person about this issue that can incrementally move move the needle forward. Thank you. Um, one of these, uh, one of the questions came from me, and the question is, Pardeep, could you discuss your role as a cop, and do you feel there is systemic racism in the Milwaukee Police Department? I think this, I mean, Tori can talk to this as well because he's done a lot of the work with uh, within departments and just uh, just uh, knows um, the standard operating procedures and knows municipalities, knows what is happening from just a just a um, uh, internal level. I will tell you that there is systemic racism in almost, and I would say I would say every police department in the United States. I would say there's historical racism if you look at the history of policing. Mm-hmm. There is spiritual racism, meaning that oftentimes, no matter who we are, and I'm going to speak on the, from a, kind of a mental health, psychological lens, there's a, um, a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is something that makes people feel good and makes people feel nurtured. It is what, what happens in us when we are pregnant. Uh, if, if you're able to get pregnant or when you, are, when you hug somebody. Oxytocin, recent studies, they say that the, the need to feel secure also creates a tribal mentality. So now we take systemic racism, combine it with our hormones, combine it with fear, combine it with a lot of different things, and it creates an us and them attitude. You put trauma on top of that you, or, and, and a paramilitary structure, it adds even more us and them. So this is why when you see people overseas, you will see people call other people infidels. You will see people dehumanize people with a language of us and them. And so it's almost, yeah, within, within the police department, there's all of these things. Um, and, and the hope is really, you know, we t- I get to talk about policing quite a bit, especially within the last, um, I would say, last month, two months. I've spoken about a lot, of, uh, just a lot. And we talk about those that are saying, okay, abolish the police, defund the police, or reform the police, or whatever. The, what, what we got to understand is that we're trying to get to, a, to the same place. 
And if you are in any profession, and you're in a profession of being a helper, or a public servant, or somebody that's trying to create communal good, what you should be trying to do is try to rid yourself of a job. I, if I'm a police officer, and I'm a good police officer, and I got the heart of a servant, I should want to be unemployed. I should want to work towards a society that ensures that. If I work at a nonprofit that brings people of different faiths together, and we, we got a conflict and a problem is there, I should want to be unemployed. Now, we got to ask ourselves honestly, are we going to a society where we are needing less police officers? And, and, and if it's not working, well, what is going to work? And start to get to that place where we can prevent so, some of this undue suffering. But yeah, to the question at hand, um, there is systemic racism. There is systemic racism, historical and spiritual racism that exists in nearly every system that exists in America because America is founded on, on, on that. Um, the history of police. Um, police started out as slave catchers, the idea, the paddy rollers. That's why they call the truck they pull up to put you in the paddy wagon. You know what I mean? It, these are things that we need to understand that if an idea started from a racist type structure and then manifested into what we see today, that means the root of the idea has to be redug out. We have to we have to restart the root of any negative idea. And when they let the slaves go, when they finally told them they was free, they re had people chase them down if they were trespassing. They already knew they had nowhere to go, so they re-enslaved re these people legally. <laughs> so these ideas and concepts, some of the justice ideas and concepts are rooted in racism and slavery and and, and re, to re-enslave. Then from forward to 2020, we wonder why we're having all these problems and why we can't get it right because of the foundation. Have you ever, a, a person told me, if, if you're going to build a house, you got to make sure that the basement is right. And if you're building on a basement or foundation that's not correct, then your, your house is going to eventually have problems with the structure. So the police had derived from a space of negativity toward African Americans and minorities. So we have to reset this idea. When people talk about justice reform, a lot of this stuff is on the books. A lot of these laws that we're asking for, if you really start looking through the paperwork, it's right there. Some of this stuff that we're saying is already written. But is it being uh, given out equally? It's not being given out equally. The Constitution was never made for African Americans. We were added to the Constitution. So some of the things that we got to understand in America is that we've been fighting for equality for a long time. But some of these entities were refurbished along the way. Like the justice system have derived now in 2020 to what we see, but it derived from a negative space against minorities in the first place. And we're just trying to correct it. We're trying to tweak it. It's like building that house on the crack foundation, and now the house is leaning, and now you're trying to get your boys over to make it look right. But like I said, 
as Americans, it's our job. This is why we came to America. This is why a lot of people love to come to America because America, because we can do anything in America if we wanted to. We have the freedom to make the changes if we wanted to. That's why we protest. That's why we try to fight for our rights. Every race has a right in America to fight. So I'll never condemn a race for saying that they're in, somebody's violating their constitutional rights. You have a right in America to pursue happiness. But in our case, in the, in the case of Afri American, I call it American African. They taught me to say African American, but I was born in Milwaukee on Fifth Street, so I'm American African. What I'm saying is they taught us things to do backwards. But this generation has an opportunity to correct it, and I see that out here. Black, white, Native Americans, Hispanics, everybody is out here standing together. And this is the first time in my life that I've ever seen that. And I believe great change can come from it. And just, uh, just really quickly, Toy, um, I, I don't mean to belabor this this point as well, but I mean, and, so 2016, President Obama uh, instituted 21st century policing and, and said that all police departments should have 21st century community-oriented policing. And, and that's where, I mean, as Tori's talking about it, I'm reflecting on it and how hard it is to change cultures, how hard it is to implement some of these policies. And, and he's exactly right. A lot of this stuff is on the books. A lot of this stuff is say, okay, let's develop a community-oriented strategy. But within a lot of major cities in the United States, um, a lot of this is failing. And we're seeing this failure play out. And, and that, was, that was what happened with the George Floyd murder. We, we watched a failure play out. All of those policies are on the books for the Minneapolis Police Department. But yet a person who has had multiple violations still exists on a police department to put his knee on the neck of another person until that person died. And so this is, you know, like lately I've been getting a lot of police officers say, hey, are you against me? Are you against... And, I'm, and, I, and the only thing I say to them is, like, stop taking things so personal. Stop taking it... Like, when you're, when you're speaking truth about what you know, to stop taking it personal and personifying it and say, okay, how do we... I would ask every police officer to go back to their respective departments and call out and say, what is not right? Because we can go to the aspirational goal of defunding or community-oriented police strategies... But tomorrow is Sunday. Next day is Monday. There's still going to be a police department out there. And right now, every police department, every one of them knows who the risky officer is, who that person is. is. Every single police department knows the internal culture, knows who just got the divorce, who is going through a separation, who is suffering, who is taking the job home with them, who is ultra-sensitive, and who is at risk. And oftentimes, and, I'll, and I, 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 I'll admit this, I wouldn't work with a lot of the bad police officers who we deemed bad police officers, but I was complicit in saying that I, I wouldn't speak up against them either. And what I was doing wrong then was basically, I, I, yeah, yeah, I was being silent. I was, I was not making it better. So if you're not actively making it better, I think, I think you're making it worse. And so, so I, th I think just yeah, belabor this point, but Tian, I'm going to come to you because the next question goes specifically to you. <laughs> Tian, what do you feel most excited about in your work for racial justice? 
uh, for one, and I think a couple of the other speakers uh, touched on it, people are listening now. And so it's quite unfortunate that we have to walk around with masks on. But like Tori said, in my lifetime, I don't recall a time where as many people wanted to engage in these conversations, wanted to learn these terms and concepts and how to apply them to their life. And the young people are vibrant. You know, I mean, when I was a teenager, Nate and Natalie's age, I was uh, on a basketball court somewhere or, you know, trying to talk to a girl at this time. That was on a good day. On a good day. Um, And then when I got a little bit more focused, everything was self-centered. I was in a pre-college program, so everything was about me. And as long as I was happy, I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, I was good. And so... For young people to step outside their comfort zone and really and really put themselves in harm's way, because anytime you're an advocate, it's a certain amount of risk that comes with That's that. Right. And it may be walking through the hall at school and getting a, a, a funny look, you know, when you're a teenager. That's important. Or it may be, you know, people following them to their houses. And so the fact that you got young people willing to put themselves in that kind of harm. And, you know, young people have a lot more energy than we do. My knees are bad, so I, I probably walk with you. We can march for a couple blocks, but I'm done. And, and, you know, they can go all day. So you got people who are, have the energy and have the dedication to keep things going. And you got a lot of people having a conversation about it's not good enough to just be, just say you're not racist. Like, you have to be anti-racist, which means you have to get out there and do something. You have to establish new norms in your circles of friends and co-workers and organizations and churches to say, that's not how we do that around here. And people underestimate how powerful that is, but uh, Par mentioned that I was a, a, a doctoral student. My first impression of the doctoral program is that people never stop being who they are when they were in grade school, high school, because I still saw the cliques I still saw some of the mannerisms. And so the things that were important to us then, like that inclusion, that sense of belonging, they're still important to people. And so if you put that pressure, if me and Tori are close, and I put that pressure on him to say, this is how we're going to live, this is how we're going to work, this is how we're going to act, either he's going to act that same way or he's going to move around. And so that's what we need to do. And that's what has me excited because you've got a lot of people who are realizing that. Pardeep, if I, can I take a step back to the policing question? I, I want to address it only because in the suburbs, what I hear a lot is, well, we don't have to worry about that because we don't have that kind of crime. Or we don't have to worry. Our police officers are, are perfection. They're ethereal because they don't do those kind of chokeholds. Okay, so it may look different. The, the bias that you come up with, the, the invisible knapsack that you bring to the table, you still have it. You have it from, from the systemic racism that we all have learned because it's been built in. So addressing the bias of a very good police officer in a very good neighborhood, there can still be a bias there that needs some kind of, of um, attention, some kind of awareness brought to if you have only policed before in an urban area that had a high crime and you come here, then do you always think that the black person that comes looks just like that black person that you last arrested 
in, in a last big arrest. So then you have that bias before that person has had a chance to do a thing. So that's what we hear about in the suburbs. How am I stopped if I didn't do anything? Well, somebody had some bias that you looked like you might be suspicious. And if you look like means weaponizing the skin you're in, then that needs some attention, some training, even though it's not a chokehold, even though it's not a violent arrest. It, it looks differently. Thank you so I can, just real quick, and, and I'm smiling. I'm smiling because this reminds me of a situation that happened to my family just last year. You know, my wife is probably about this small, not intimidating at all, right? But she was coming from uh, some work she was doing in Pewaukee one night. Went past a police officer. You know, she's facing this way, stopped at the light. Police officers facing this way. See each other, acknowledge each other. She's doing all the legal laws you need to do when you're driving. She drives, comes home, um, no incidents. About 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, my kids come running to my bedroom door, knocking and screaming, saying somebody's shining lights in their room. So what happened was the police ran her plates, didn't stop her because she didn't do anything. They ran her plates followed her across five cities from Pewaukee to Milwaukee, wow. the path she takes to go to work. Or they, you know, some people call that good, good detective work. They found our house, which is very secluded. So unless you know where you're going, you're not finding it. And because our property is so dark at night, went from window to window with their flashlights. And then, you know, if any of you have ever watched a police show or been in a situation where the police knock on your door did that famous police knock at four in the morning and so I get up and I protect my family so usually I'm gonna grab a umbrella a bat something you know to make sure that we're safe because nobody comes to our house at four in the morning and I see six police officers on my property and they're asking me about my vehicle whose vehicle is this where was it and I'm like, it's our vehicle. My wife works out there. Oh, can we talk to her? And it, dark code. I'm like, come in, you know, because it's dark as cold. They come in, and they get in a strategic position around me so that I can't go any place. And I'm just like, why are you guys here? And they were like, oh, we had heard somebody was looking in cars in Pewaukee. Now, she goes straight down Capitol, so it's no neighborhoods there where there's cars parked on the street. So that couldn't have been the case. And, and I'm like, okay, well, that didn't happen. I think what happens is you saw a black person in a car that wasn't fancy in your neighborhood, and you wanted to dig into it. And they just laughed. Four in the morning, school night. And that's something that is not police putting a foot on somebody's neck, but... Imagine that could be scarring for young people. That can be lifelong trauma. Imagine if I would have came to the door with a knife or a gun or something. I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now, even if I was a threat to them or not. Because when it's dark and it's those kind of circumstances and you're scared because they were scared, you don't know what you would do. You can say you'll do this. You can say you've been trained to do anything. But until you're in that fearful situation... You don't know what you're going to do. And that's why we're here. Yeah, 
I think uh, just when we talk about um, the spiritual toll of systematic racism and we think about what we see on TV, I worry that sometimes what we see on TV, some of us might see it and say, okay, what's, well, you know, a, a black man being shot by a white officer or we can, we can address it by race, but then some other people see it and say, that's my son, that's my brother, that's, that's family. I see something closer, and, 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 and that level of scarring doesn't really leave you. So right. Tion answers the door. He's answering with all of that scar, all of that, all of that ca- happening through him. We all get nervous when we see a cop uh, pull us over. That's just almost a natural reaction. But to Tion, it's different. To somebody else, it's different. And we got to understand that, that there is a difference. Police officers need to be trained in, in that as well. To pull over somebody is not always the same thing. To pull over somebody, let's say, so so yeah, just thinking about all those things. Yeah, and I, you know, I think this is a great. That was a great question for us all to kind of talk about as well. Um, Erica, this one is for you. Um, what should be our next steps? What should be our next steps? Oh dear. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I really do believe that. You have to have a good foundation, to Tori's point. If you're coming to this conversation fresh because you haven't ever thought about racism, you haven't had to, you haven't wanted to, whatever the reason, you need to get a good foundation. You need to know all of the definitions of what these things are that we're talking about. You need to have a a time of educating yourself, which may be by yourself. But then you may be ready to read a book and talk with another person to go back and forth with some of these thoughts. You have to address the feelings that you're having about what you're hearing. If you have, you know, six police officers in your family, hearing somebody talking about a bias that a police officer has may make you feel some kind of way. You need to, you need to hear that. You need to listen to that. You need to address how you feel about it and then take the next step. So I think that educating yourself by way of books on our website we're always leaving a list of books to say start with reading those books you need to start by building relationship with people who look differently than you and obviously if you're in Ozaki County we say that that's bridge the divide we have a, a place that we consider safe not safe that you won't ever feel hurt or uncomfortable but safe that we're providing a space that we're willing to talk with you we're giving you some grace we're willing to be compassionate, but we still want to stay kind of firm on what we need to do to become anti-racist. And sometimes it works better when you have a group doing it with you so you don't feel all alone. You don't have to have the courage all alone. You don't have to be vulnerable all alone. We can do it in community and still get you to the next step. Thank you. Tor. Say no to discrimination, racism, and segregation. Say no when you hear it. When you hear people discussing things that you know is racist or discriminatory, just be the bigger person on a higher frequency. The more people that make it uncool, you got to make that not cool. Yo, man, this is not cool. You're talking about this. This is not cool. And people will only grow in a negative way if you're feeding it attention. Uh, 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 ignorance grows with your attention. <laughs> you know, a person, if you ignore them, they walk away or they'll go somewhere else. But 
if every individual just made talking a certain kind of way uncool, and y'all hear it all the time, y'all are walking around, y'all hear people say things that they're not supposed to say, but are you silent? Are, are you, or are you going to say, hey, that's not cool, bro. That's not something we practice. That's not something we're, we're going to get involved in. It's something that me and my family is not going to get involved in. And it starts right there because the children will see it. Your kids will see you standing up and making a stand, and then they'll go and say, my dad said that wasn't cool. My mother said that wasn't cool. We just have to start a whole movement about making these type of negative conversations uncool. And if we do that, that'll plant the seeds for people to start reading books, for people to start looking at documentaries, for people to start getting educated. But, if, but we have to start by striking it down. Say no to racism and discrimination. Hashtag that ain't cool. That ain't cool. <laughs> that ain't cool. Uh, I think we, we've been saying what you guys need to do, what we all need to do when we move here. It's been an underlying theme throughout the conversation. And, it's, you know, it's really hold yourself and hold others accountable. Um, like Tori said, you got to establish those new norms, even if those new norms is just in your house, just in your department, just at your organization. Um, they need to know that uh, if you're perpetuating any kind of ism, racism especially, you're not welcome here. Those ideals aren't welcome here. Uh, this is how we do things. Um, the other thing is just really reach beyond what you're comfortable doing, who you're comfortable being around. Um, I remember a while back I worked for a pre-college program. I took a bunch of kids to a haunted house in Big Bend, Wisconsin. And so before we got off the bus, we had to have a conversation. And that conversation went like this. And there's a lot of people out here who only see or interact with people who look like you on the radio and on TV. And think about how the radio and the TV portrays you. And so you have a little bit of the responsibility of proving them right or proving them wrong. And so that conversation was twofold. And acknowledging that it's not fair that we got to change, especially kids, have to work to change grown-ups' minds. But I want you to leave here having a happy time, a good time, and being safe. And so, one, let's give this person the benefit of the doubt to know that we may have to participate in some dialogue and answer some questions that's going to help them grow. And two, let them know that if you do anything to put yourself in their crosshairs, you're probably not going to get that same kind of fair treatment that someone else would. And so knowing that that's something that people actively discuss before they come to your communities, that's a conversation for you to have amongst yourself to make sure that it's a more welcoming community. I want to thank you for, um, for just being out today. And the thing that I'll say is, and, and, and echoes that what all of our guests are saying, and, and definitely follow um, Bridge the Divide with Erica. Go to bridgethedivide.com. Follow Facebook. Hold follow Tian Austin. Bridgethedivide.life. If you oh. go to dot .com, you're going to talk politics. We're not oh, talking politics. <laughs> what is it? Bridge the... Bridge the divide dot life. Bridge L-I-F-E. the divide dot life. Yep. And Tion, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, Tion.Austin at, at Twitter. All right. And Tori? 
Torylow.com, T-O-R-Y-L-O-W-E, and Tory Lowe on Facebook. Support these conversations going forward. Support these organizers going forward. These are committed committed uh, advocates who have been doing this for, for the longest time. I'm going to go on that walk with you to Chicago, my man. All right? We're going to yeah, do that. We're going right, 100 miles. 100 miles and running. 100 miles. All right? We're going to do that. Neil, you, you heard me. We, it's, 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 on, it's on air, all right? Hey, so, look, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> so um, the last thing, um, you know, I think that we can do is we can sacrifice, and we thank you for everyone um, sacrificing being out here. We see you in the cars. We see it's, it's getting hot out here. You've ran your gas, maybe you run your AC. You're listening to us on, on, on FM, AM. Maybe some of you just got the windows rolled down. The sun is coming hot on my neck back here. So I know that everybody else out there is, is, is sacrificing. And to, uh, you know, to, in, in Punjabi or in, in Islam, we call it kurbani. It's, it's that we need to sacrifice for, uh, to make this world a better place. And they are doing it. You are doing it. Continue to keep doing it. Give yourselves credit because there's a lot of people driving past that were not out here today. There's a lot of people who are at home. And we need you to go ahead and go have those conversations. Continue to have those conversations. And, and we thank you and God bless you all. And it's time for God's people to stand up. If, if you believe in God, you got to take a stand for righteousness. Amen? Amen. Amen. So before we have you leave today, there's just a few more things that we want to mention. So first of all, thank you, Erica and Bridge to the Divide. They um, donated a door prize. So um, congratulations, ticket number 35, Sherry DeMario. You won our door prize. So if you could just raise your hand, and we'll have a volunteer bring it to you. All right, and then also, as I mentioned at the beginning of the event, we are, along with the student union, hosting some follow-up discussions in the next few weeks. Um, if you are interested, they're going to be a more in-depth discussion about some of the things our panel talked about today, as well as looking towards more possible action steps that we can take. So if you're interested, those will be happening August 4th, 11th, and 18th at the student union, and more information will be coming soon with that. Um, also, we want to thank again our sponsor and our donors and CAPCO for hosting us and everyone who donated to the GoFundMe page. So I know Natalie kind of mentioned it, but as you saw the tickets coming in, our sponsor's Slowpotes, so check them out. It looks really good. Um, I just want to give, I just want to give, and all of us, give this amazing panel, one more really, really loud round of applause because they killed it out here today. As far as exiting goes, uh, you can come in the way that you came. Just follow our volunteers. There is also an exit over there that is open, and so just follow the people with the vests on. Um, and thank you for, for coming out, and stay safe, everybody. <laughs>